to Life Solved, the research podcast from the University of Portsmouth, where we explore how studies here are changing our world today and in the future. I'm Robin Montague, and in this episode, we take a look at the complexities of chemsex. I think it's key not to call this a new phenomenon because it's not that new. It's been around for a long time. We've been talking about it for a long time within the community. And the more we can normalise it and it become a topic of conversation, I think that will be really, really important. Veronica Carruthers is lecturer in victimology and criminal justice at the University of Portsmouth. And Ignacio Labayandienza is CEO of the charity Controlling Chemsex. I have been supporting people struggling with chemsex since 2008, working in different services in London, but on average I have been meeting around 14, 15 people a week for years. We've made thousands of people. Chemsex might be a new term to you, but the modern-day use of drugs to enhance sexual experience has its more complex side. There are those who are either trying to leave the world or in, for want of a better word, recovery. By the way, if you're affected by anything discussed in this episode, you can find links to support in the podcast show notes and we'll give you details of Ignacio's charity at the end. If you're outside of the communities engaging in chemsex, the term might be new to you. Ronnie explains. It's not necessarily a new term that has come to light. It's been around for a long time within the community. But since 2010, it was coined officially for research purposes. And essentially, the best way to describe it is particular individuals, most commonly gay men or men who have sex with men, who use specific substances such as crystal methamphetamine, methadrone, GHB, GBL, in order to enhance their sexual experiences. So what's the main attraction towards chemsex? It's so much more than getting high. It's quite complex and I think once again it's important to understand the historical development of the LGBTQ community. Historically we have been oppressed and people have had to go underground so to speak and participate and be try to be themselves in a community which is trying to accept them. Once people are sort of driven underground, there's also an element of shame and stigma that comes with chemsex and within the male gay community in particular. If you look at the HIV epidemic, gay sex was stigmatised even further. And I think a lot of people within the community did have that self-shame and internal homophobia regarding themselves. And often the use of these substances can really help overcome that. A lot of these substances increase confidence, they increase your libido, they make you feel carefree. And it's an escape mechanism for a lot of these people. And an environment where they feel accepted and they can be themselves. So I think a lot of it stems from that, from a historical perspective. And I think recently what we're seeing more today is it's just more and more accessible. If I go to a sauna, which is a venue where people are having sex, and I go with all my insecurities and I take something that is make me feel confident and relaxed and I can talk to everyone, I can make jokes and I feel accepted. It's not the same that if I go to a sauna just with who I am and I am in a corner terrified thinking, oh my God, if someone is going to talk to me or if someone rejects me, I will die. So there are many elements. There are elements related to self-esteem, lots of problems with loneliness, 
uh, need of connection, problems with intimacy, problems, psychosexual issues, people who are using chems because they are struggling, for example, with premature ejaculation and my whole life, my sex life has been very embarrassing, but if I take something, I'm not going to ejaculate after two minutes and that makes me feel more relaxed because for once I found a solution. Data collected by the London Ambulance Service suggests that more than 700 people in the capital have been treated for intoxication from substances associated with chemsex in recent years. And other stories suggest there's been a spike in these numbers. Ignacio has been working with charities who offer chemsex support since 2008. In the beginning of the 20th century, 2000, 2005, 2010, then is when new drugs came out. And these drugs were these drugs that made people feel very confident but also make people feel they were actually very good to connect. So people were using drugs in the same way that they had been using cocaine, but the substances have changed completely. We have crystal meth, we have methadone, we have GHB. So people start to use the same drugs, but these drugs, they were much more destructive. GHB has two main problems. One of them is physical dependency. So if you get used to take that, you cannot stop otherwise you have withdrawal symptoms. The same with injecting. These drugs are very, very, the, if the effects are very, very much stronger. If you inject them that if you just smoke or snorting and everything changed, it was like the perfect storm. And adding to that perfect storm was a lightning bolt of new phone apps. We have Grinder, we have Scrub, you can have sex with a complete stranger in five minutes. You can find drugs there. It's very, very easy to find drug dealers. If you are struggling with loneliness, you can go there just to use sex, to meet other people and to connect, but you are going to find 100% drugs on your way. And maybe you don't use the first day and the third day and fourth day, but maybe one day, one year later, you get familiar with people using and one day you meet someone who you like. And he insists and he's like, well, let's try it a little bit. And then you try and the world keeps moving. It wasn't that big drama. So maybe next month, I'm going to take a little bit more of G. I'm going to take again. And that is how things start. The newer drugs being used today are classed as psychoactive substances. And these are often coming to market faster than drug regulation can keep up. That poses an extra challenge. GHB, up until very recently, wasn't actually illegal and it can still be purchased online. And I think GHB in particular is probably one of the most high risk substances, shall we say. This mostly due to the high dependency rate, but also the overdose risk. The amount that somebody should actually use in order to have a safe experience is anywhere from 0.5 to 1.5 milliliters. Now, this all depends on your height, on your build, on your experience, and there should be large periods of time between dosing. And people often don't know these very basic steps and will use a lot all at once. And the overdose risk is very high. Unfortunately, shame and worries about being caught taking illegal drugs mean the chances of people calling an ambulance for an overdose is lower than it should be. If I could say anything to people is, is really would be to ask for help. Help will be given to you. You won't necessarily be in trouble for using the substance or for taking that substance in that moment with the hospital. And encourage others to call for help if they're in a situation where somebody is 
experiencing an overdose. The signs are very similar to a heroin overdose in terms of blue fingertips and or blue lips and generally being unconscious. And if that information can be given to paramedics at the scene, it's really, really key because unfortunately in the UK as of right now, if you are admitted to hospital with an overdose, toxicology is usually undertaken. And that toxicology can consist of over 300 different substances. But GHB or GBL often isn't included in that. And so it's a real key element to be able to inform paramedics that GHB has been consumed because then appropriate support can be given. Without that, it can be very, very risky. And especially in regards to fatal overdoses, GHB is most prominent within the chemsex community. Here are some Life Solve podcast recommendations. Life's too short to fully examine it, but here are some podcasts to help you make some progress. The Partially Examined Life Philosophy podcast is a deep dive philosophy reading group that's been downloaded nearly 50 million times. Based on its success, host Mark Linsenmeyer started the Nakedly Examined Music podcast featuring career-spanning interviews with songwriters. You get to hear some great songs and learn about the creative decisions behind them. But maybe you're not that geeky about music or philosophy. Well, try Mark's Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast, where diverse panels of guests examine what we watch or otherwise consume. Finally, for the philosophy beginner who's not adverse to some comedy thrown into the mix, try Philosophy vs. Improv. Mark and Chicago improv comedy instructor Bill Arnett teach each other their respective arts and bring on professional philosophers and or performers to keep things lively. Find out about all of Mark's podcasts at partiallyexaminedlife.com or look up the Partially Examined Life, Nakedly Examined Music, Pretty Much Pop and Philosophy versus Improv wherever you listen. Life Solved is the research podcast from the University of Portsmouth and you might like one of our other episodes. From space, fabrics, films, environments, human biology, philosophy and much more, there's an episode for you. Why not try out our episode exploring cybersexuality? Deviation is a key to innovation, understanding a culture of the future. And I think that if you've got some people with really different ideas that deviate things from the norm, then you've got different types of innovation coming out from that. And I think maybe that's something that I did with virtual reality was I deviated from what people thought it was going to be used for and took it from there. It's episode seven of season 10 on this podcast feed. All the shows from our first 11 series are available to stream for free wherever you listen to your podcasts. Controlling Chemsex is a charity set up by Ignacio. In the early 2000s, he felt that specific chemsex advice wasn't easily accessible. I created a document with David Stewart, who was my manager at Dean Street, and we were very close friends. He was the number one chemsex activist until he passed in 2021. And we created a document about first day, how to react when things go wrong in a chemsex scenario. If you are in a sex party, someone is having an overdose on G, when you have in GHP, when you have to call an ambulance, what is what you can do to make sure that that person. So we spoke with paramedics, we spoke with psychiatrists, we spoke with A&E 999 and the problem was that we created this document. That document was unique, unique in the world and David wanted to spread this among professionals. But I told him that we had to spread that 
among the people who were actually going to sex parties and who were actually suffering from this kind of events. So Ignacio took the advice and support to where it would be seen. I created a profile on Grindr just to deliver the link to this document. And it was huge. I mean, in one year, I think I received maybe 13,000 messages from people on Grindr asking for many, many things, not just from the link, people who were asking for support because I don't know how to support my partner and I would like to get some help or people who were looking for information that they couldn't find because they said, but you know, every time you go look for information about sex, everything is about the drugs that people use, why people do it. And I know all that, but what I don't know is how can I manage my cravings? How can I reconnect with sober sex? And also there were people who were finding very difficult to go to the services that were available because they were based on dropping. So they opened, for example, on Thursday between five and seven. One of the problems that lots of people experience with chem sex is paranoia. They found lots of people found very difficult to go to those places. Ronnie says that agencies and services are only just catching up with the idea of chemsex as a phenomena in society and the support they need to provide. I was actually informed about controlling chemsex through one of my research participants and that's how Ignacio and I got talking together. And the fact that controlling chemsex is online and that anybody can access it is so, so important because a lot of what my research focuses on is trying to shed light on the fact that a lot of services within our country are postcode specific and unless you live in a community or in a big city where there is a large lgbtq community and drug counseling services and sexual health clinics have that awareness and that acceptance of individuals who might be participating in chemsex the support is extremely limited but people who come from small communities small towns small villages sometimes they even know the people that they are accessing support from or there are connections there, there is that fear of, is that person truly going to understand where I am coming from? Do they truly understand the world that I live in? And are they truly aware on how to appropriately provide that support? There is more to it than simply providing harm reduction in the sense of clean needles, needle exchange programs, having one-to-one sessions. There, It needs to go beyond that, that element of drug use and and sexual experiences need to be combined. While some support services seem to be catching up, Ronnie's been studying chemsex for some time. I began having an interest in this area when I was still doing my undergraduate degree at university and I have a lot of friends within the community and I'm I'm part of the LGBT community myself and as we were all growing up I knew people who were becoming involved and I thought it was necessary for me to begin research within this field considering the, the lack of information that existed at that time. Since then I think there's been a lot of focus on chemsex in regards to professional papers. There is a lot to read about, which is excellent. And that's kind of led me to where I am today. I've sort of continued that path, now finishing off my PhD in chemsex as well, or researching chemsex. And really what my aim is with my PhD is not necessarily just to research it from a statistical and health point of view, but my aim is to really try and give a voice to the individuals who are part of the community. So what about those trying to leave the chemsex world? The challenge can be that they've been in those surroundings for a long time. 
They obviously often have developed a community. People who really are deeply, you know, ingrained within chemsex haven't just been doing it for a week or so. They have been participating within the community for months, if not years. And it does become their reality. And wanting to detach from that can be really isolating. It's the fact that that support isn't always available. Detaching yourself from that, trying to find employment, which can often be lost throughout the process of engaging in chemsex quite intensely, trying to find a sense of community which doesn't participate in drug taking and chemsex as a whole. So I think that can be quite a daunting process for a lot of people, which is really the sort of main issue there. But I think once you can take yourself out of that, it's about how do you readjust with yourself. That idea of having sex without drugs is quite difficult for a lot of people. And I think a lot of people also then carry shame with them post coming out of that community how do they reconnect with people again how do they reconnect on a sober level how do they start to view themselves and their own sexuality in order to be proud of themselves it's very difficult and I've got a um, a lot of people that I spoke to speak about yes they are now sober and yes they're no longer participating in chemsex but some of them haven't had sexual partners for years because they feel that that sexual connection with other individuals is really difficult now but on the other hand a lot of them say that they are feeling happier, feeling healthier. A lot of them want to actually give back to the community. There are also challenges from within the chemsex world. The stigma within the chemsex community about, oh yes, I can take these substances, but if you inject certain substances, then you are lesser or not as worthy. So I think if everybody could encourage themselves in order to use safely and if people do want to stop using in order to point them in the right direction so that there is somebody available and that support system is in place, then I think that that would be really key. So what's next for Ignacio's controlling chemsex charity? We are working very hard because... First of all, the most important thing is to raise awareness. One of the things that we hear the most is people saying, if I would have known what that was going to be about. And the problem is that even on Grindr, you can find lots of people who they ask, what is H&H? H and H is the way how people refer to chemsex on Grindr because you cannot say that word clearly. So H&H H mean, comes from high and horny. In America, it's P and P, party and play. But lots of people, they are not aware. Some people, for example, they end up having meth. And because crystal meth is called Tina, they think that there's something else. And then when they try for the first time, and then they come back and they say, if I would have known that that was meth, I thought it was something else. And people don't know that G is so addictive. And people don't know that G is so easy to overdose. So I think the most important thing here is awareness. We are working really hard precisely to raise this awareness, not just in the queer community, also in the society, because I don't know how many people are constantly asking me, but what is this thing about chemsex? I'm sure that there will be someone who is using chems with sexual purposes. Maybe in less than 50, 100 meters, you will have someone who might be on sat on Friday night on Grinder, and he's struggling or he is trying to stop because it's affecting the community. So awareness, I think awareness is one of the most important thing. There is also, it's very important to provide proper training. People are starting to become aware. Thanks God that is happening, but there is no resources. Every time that we try to get funding, we have problems because funders, they don't know what chemsex is. 
Despite the financial and training challenges, support is available thanks to the likes of Controlling Chemsex and, as you've heard, other agencies are finally catching up. If you need help or advice, there's a wealth of information and next steps at controllingchemsex.com. The aim of the charity is simply to help without any judgment and many of the team have personal experience of chemsex so know the challenges and pitfalls along the way. Ronnie's work on her PhD at the University of Portsmouth will add to the valuable research going into chemsex and help more voices to get heard. Once I started talking to my participants, they wanted to talk about it. They absolutely wanted to talk about it. Some of them have access support, like I mentioned. Some of them haven't. So some of them had never had the opportunity to have an open conversation. And I think they really appreciated that and and respected that. And I think the report was built very strongly right from the beginning. And so it was just such an honour to be able to talk to them and them telling me about their experiences. And it was lovely. And I really hope that I'm able to do their stories and their experiences justice within my PhD. If you have any thoughts or questions, we'd like you to be part of the discussion. Email us at lifesolved at port.ac.uk. That's lifesolved, one word, at port.ac.uk. Tell us what you think and make suggestions for future episodes of Life Solved. In the meantime, you can get news of the latest developments here at the university by going to our website, port.ac.uk. And we'd love if you clicked follow on your podcast app so you never miss an edition. We'd really appreciate it if you left a rating or review as well. It helps us get those conversations into more ears around the globe. Next time, the reality of crime scene investigation compared to what we see on our TV screens. Personally, I think they glamorised the role. CSI, I think, was probably the first one. And it was so glamorous. They all had perfect hair and perfect nails and heels and a gun. No one's ever let me have a gun. Bye for now. <laughs> <laughs>